I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, and in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American empire and national security state operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mayor, Framework, M-E-E-R, Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our coverage of the Ukraine crisis, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, this time with longtime war reporter Patrick Coburn, who has been on the show before and was kind enough to give a brief interview outlining his thoughts on the invasion and how this is a gamble for Putin that could put his political survival in Russia in doubt. Additionally, Patrick will discuss with us what he believes is the affliction of hubris that has over the years affected not only the Western powers with military inventions in places like Iraq and Libya, but now Vladimir Putin as well. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. I wrote The Big Balloon, a love story, a memoir collage during quarantine. My legs swelled up at the computer. I took pictures of objects in my house. Each image inspired a wormhole of chain-linked recall. It's funny, disturbing, and scary honest. The chapters are just rooms in my house. Ryan Walsh, author of Astral Weeks, A Secret History of 1968, said this, Berlin populates his writing with memories that will break your heart and wisdom tossed off as one-liners. Walk through his house, flip on the lights room by room, see what he has left there for you and all of us. All of my bands, Orchestra Luna through the Nickel and Dime Band, find a place here, but there's a deeper cut into my non-musical, queer life and those I've loved. Friends, family, portraits, and weird observations. Part Andy Rooney, part David Sedaris, part Proust. A stretch. You can read about it on my website, berlinrick.com. You can buy this beast of a book on Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble. Thank you. Welcome back to Parallax Views. Uh, Patrick Coburn, who was nice enough 
to uh, come on the show on short notice. Uh, Patrick, I, I want to know right off the bat, what are your feelings about this uh, invasion of, of Ukraine? I know you've written an article about how Putin has gambled everything on this invasion and that his political survival in Russia may be in doubt now. Yes, it's a pretty extraordinary gamble because it's uh, uh, it's, it's always been very unlikely to come off. He was in quite a strong position when he was threatening to invade, but it always seemed to me that it could be a real disaster if he did invade because uh, um, the uh, Ukrainians would uh, rally against him, even those the Russian speakers who were one time might have been sympathetic. Um, they would get support from the West. Um, the you know Ukraine is a pretty big place. It's three times the size of uh, Britain. Um, it's got a population of 44 million. You know this isn't like sort of uh, invading um, you know a small place like Cyprus or in the Russian case Chechnya. Um, so it was always likely to fail, and it's rather amazing they they did it. Uh, but it's pretty well an unwinnable war from their point of view. And it's very much Putin's doing. Um, and there's pretty sort of strong evidence that uh, lots of the Russian elite, the sort of um, foreign policy makers, but also just uh, uh, educated people just uh, from the word go could see that this was pretty disastrous and were pretty appalled. That doesn't mean that uh, Putin is going to go immediately because... Um, he's a bit like Saddam Hussein in uh, 19, uh, 1991 after invading Kuwait and getting defeated. But, uh, he stayed in power 13 years. I don't think Putin will last that long, but suddenly his future is, yeah, very much in doubt. So I'm curious, I mean, none of us can get inside Putin's head, but what do you make of all this? I think there's a lot of psychoanalyzing of uh, Putin going on and, and people trying to say, has he gone mad? Uh, uh, w- w- what has happened to him? And I think in your article uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, you cast doubt on on this whole idea of mad or just bad. You, you sort of point towards uh, a symptom uh, that many leaders end up uh, falling victim to, which is hubris. Yeah, you know, it's sort of... Uh... You know, first of all, one could say it's a pretty mad thing to do, using mad in the sense of, you know, unlikely to work. But it struck me, uh, you know, over the years as a journalist, that people who nobody thought was mad, like Tony Blair uh, in Britain, who took part in the invasion of Iraq in 2003, um, you know, the Afghan invasion, um that uh, there was, uh, why do they do it? Because lots of, you know, smart people would tell them from the word go, this is a really bad idea. I think there are a couple of things come into it, particularly in leaders that have uh, been around a long time. Um, that uh, arrogance, they just get, they, they trust their own judgment much more than they should. And secondly, all their sort of advisors have become courtiers. Uh, you know, when when papers are finally revealed, released, if they ever are, but the decisions to go into going to Libya, going to Iraq, uh, going to Afghanistan, it's always 
amazing how so ill-informed the people in charge seem to have been. Usually there are people in the government apparatus who've got a very good idea what's going on. But the guys who actually take the decision, uh, it, yeah, it's a mixture of sort of arrogance and uh, um, and having built up a sort of um, a court system around themselves that invariably sort of uh, says, uh, yeah, you got it right once again, great leader. You know? So uh, they're very ill-advised. And in uh, Putin's case, that's... Uh, you know, you got that in spades. Based on what we've heard from figures like Putin and Lavrov uh, at this point, uh, what do we think the ultimate aim is um, for Vladimir Putin with this invasion? Because I, I think a lot of people, uh, especially on the left, have focused on, um, you know, NATO and security concerns. But he also made these claims about genocide and neo-Nazis that, as far as I can tell, are very kind of out there. And, you know, what he's demanding is a sort of demilitarization of Ukraine, which to me seems like he would need a permanent military occupation to do that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, just on a simple level, um, you know, they don't have the troops because one of the reasons many people thought they wouldn't invade is, you know, you can do a quick calculation um, of how many troops they'd need, you know, they, uh, and they didn't have them, you know, they had, uh, uh, maybe 150,000 men, um, lined up. That's not enough to invade a country, uh, with a population of 44 million. Unless, unless, of course, a lot of these people are sympathetic to you. And Putin seems to have kidded himself that, uh, they would be. Now, they don't seem to have had a sort of proper plan. They said, well, they suffered a lot of casualties by sort of, you know, going into cities, you know, with sort of uh, in sort of soft skin vehicles as if they were on maneuvers and uh, were expecting to be greeted by, you know, uh, people throwing flowers and sweets at them. Uh, they seem to have believed all that. You know, yeah, there are, you know, there are Ukrainian nationalists who are very far to the right. You know, you could say some of them are sort of like the Nazis, but, you know, they don't actually run the country. <laughs> they, um, and, you know, they're among the forces there. But, uh, and so there seems to be a gross overconfidence. Well, the first thing that Putin demanded on sort of day one was that the, uh, the uh, government be overthrown. The NC government be overthrown. Hopefully, he said, by the, by the Ukrainian army, why don't they do it? And then lay down their arms. So there's this sort of grotesque overconfidence from the beginning. But, you know, it's sort of, uh, I think by saying, you know, oh, Putin's mad, but it seems to me I've spent quite a lot of my career covering invasions that were truly and obviously a very bad idea. You know, from, uh, you know, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982, you know, uh, pretty bad idea, but it took place, pretty disastrous. Uh, the um, U.S. various U.S. invasions I mentioned, you know, to Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, British and French, and involved in Libya. Um, I think there's also a, there's probably an element of racism in this um, that they just uh, think, you know, it'll be quite easy to take over these countries, and uh, nobody much is going to get to res- resist. Um, 
they're, they're all they're often so impressed also I mean, political leaders are impressed if the place is a bit anarchic doesn't have much of a government but they don't draw the conclusion which they ought that places that don't have governments that there's nothing really you can't really just take knock over the government and take over because it doesn't give you any authority so uh you know i saw that in lebanon uh, in the 1980s. Could you speak a little bit more about that, uh, what you saw in Lebanon and how you would compare it to uh, what we're seeing with uh, Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine? Well, the Israelis used to think it's going to be really easy. It used to be an Israeli sort of joke that uh, um, I don't you know, you say, I don't know who will the first Arab uh, uh, state to make peace with Israel, but I know which the second will be. The idea this was before Sadat signed his agreement with uh, the um, with Israel. The idea was that the Lebanese were all sort of basically interested in making money and wouldn't fight. Didn't have, seem to have a proper government. In fact, when the Israelis went in, the, the Lebanese fought very hard. Um, you know, after a, a few sort of months there, you know, you'd see Israeli soldiers and they'd see us. Old man with a donkey cart, and they'd throw themselves on the ground because they thought it was a suicide bomb. When they got back to Israel, they kissed the ground, you know. So that's sort of complete overconfidence. Um, it's because uh, a Russian actually, it's, um, the uh, who said, "Beware of small states," or maybe he said, "Small nations." You know, they uh, they can be really dangerous, and that's true. That's true of uh, Lebanon and. Uh, is true of uh, Ukraine, to my mind. With regards to, you know, Russia essentially becoming, I would say, a pariah state now, uh, you know, most of the world, the great powers seems to, seem to be in favor of, um, of Ukraine here. You know, Putin has responded to that by, you know, giving pretty not-so-veiled threats about, the use of nuclear weapons against any um, state actor who would interfere in his campaign in Ukraine. Uh, what does this threat mean? And uh, what does it mean for, you know, both the U.S., uh, NATO allies, and also just the Russian public? I think it's really dangerous and really dangerous for all of them. The reason is it's kind of an act of desperation, because you can see things going so deeply wrong for him in Ukraine, and you know, if, uh, if if they if it's a complete fiasco there, how long is Putin going to last? You know, pretty difficult to get rid of him, but they, they, he's not going to they're not going to give him a sort of uh, a trial or a, a nice villa to live in exile on the Black Sea. Well, the what does this mean? These veiled nuclear threats. What what does this mean? Not just for. Uh, the U.S. And, and NATO allies, but also the Russian public. Yeah, well, it's very, it's dangerous for all of them because it's an act of desperation and uh, it's a sign of weakness because that's the one Trump card he has left. The Russian army has sort of failed to take really the beginning of the big cities in Ukraine. All these sanctions have been levied on Russia, which means a sort of economic uh, disaster. So... Um, the nuclear weapons are the one things that still make Russia a superpower. So he's threatened to use them. But you could see, you know, how a war in Ukraine could turn into a war with the NATO powers, 
Russia the NATO powers if they were supporting uh, the um, uh, resistance in Ukraine, and then how that could turn into a sort of nuclear exchange. I mean, you know, the chances are against it, thankfully, but the chances are there. And there's a second point. <laughs> Launching this war in Ukraine shows real bad judgment on the part of uh, Putin. So, you know, who's to say what Putin would do if things got worse and if he wanted to do some saber-rattling with nuclear weapons? You know, I think very few Russians, even at the top, thought he would invade Ukraine, but it was a fantastically stupid thing to do. And one might think that doing anything with nuclear weapons might deter him as well. But if having done one very stupid thing, maybe he'd do another. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I was watching a clip uh, before this all came to head, uh, where Putin was sort of having a little bit of a, a showdown of sorts with his spy chief, uh, and his spy chief was advocating for more diplomacy, and and Putin was having none of it. Um, this seems very uncharacteristic in a lot of people's minds, uh, given uh, Putin's rather careful calculations. Uh, with past conflicts, uh, so so or interventions, yeah, I yeah. should say, Chechnya and Syria. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I was at the, from the last Chechen war it started in '99 and went on to 2000. I mean, in theory, it went on another three or four years, but those was years of the hard fighting. Uh, and the, you know, the Putin was in charge. He was pretty, uh, he was pretty careful, pretty uh, methodical. You know, they they moved in slowly. They um, uh, only fought battles they could win, and they did win. And they recruited local allies in Syria. Similarly, uh, what they did or advised the Syrians to do also pretty sim- simple, uh, pretty uh, pretty serious, and uh, pretty effective. So what this time around is completely sort of out of line. And, you know, it's full of sort of bizarre elements. You know, sort of. You know, there's a lot of propaganda coming out, so one can't believe more than a certain amount of what one hears. It's very one-sided because it comes from the Ukrainian side. Because one of the Putin, by saying, you know, this is just a sort of a special military operation. If you if if you if you say it isn't a war, it's rather difficult to sort of then give your side of that war because you just said the war didn't take place. But um, you know their account of the uh, of the war is um, you know that uh, from the Ukrainians um, uh, you know they've been able to get the initiative in, in, the, in the propaganda war. It seems as if uh, you know this was a huge miscalculation um, by Putin. I mean, people are watching this unfold um, as it happens. I mean, I mean we have. Uh, videos coming out on social media. Um, what do you think the role of, of, of social media is in uh, this conflict, or if you have an opinion on that? I think particularly photographs, it has a very big uh, effect. You know, I was just uh, writing about it today, you know, bombing bombing cities. People sort of said Russians are sort of committing atrocities. But actually, any sort of siege that I've seen, you know, of um, Beirut by Israel, um, but Mosul by the Iraqi army, 2016-17, uh, Raqqa, uh, East Aleppo, Syrian army, they all behave a bit the same, which is to blow everything up. 
it's quite difficult to fight your way into a city um, which is heavily defended without using lots of artillery, which is what they're doing. Um, so it's not new what's happening. But if the um, Ukraine, if the Russians are going to fight their way into uh, uh, Kiev and um, Kharkov, then uh, you know they're going to f- blow up an awful lot of things. But that's the way you do it. You know, you sort of, as a city center of resistance, you sort of blast it with your artillery or uh, with airstrikes. Um, and uh, uh, so you, you know, you kill an awful lot of people. But it, what has changed is really mobile phones. It means anybody who gets killed, you know, or badly wounded, immediately people take photographs of it. Immediately, you know, it's put. Uh, on Facebook or it appears on television and soon the whole world knows. So the sort of propaganda downside of these sieges is much more serious than it used to be. So it's also interesting. It's very hard to tell what is and isn't propaganda when these um, matters uh, really come to the fore. And I'm curious, uh, there's been a lot of talk of how, you know, since Russians and Ukrainians uh, have such a history with each other, uh, there may be a, an issue with morale amongst uh, Russian troops uh, who, you know, uh, look at Ukrainians as, as similar to them, as, as coming from uh, uh, the same sort of um, cloth. Uh, do you think there's much to that? Pretty difficult to know. You know, they, they, they don't seem enthusiastic. And one thing that does stand out that Putin didn't do was he didn't didn't prepare the Russian people for a war, you know, uh, they weren't expecting. He doesn't seem to have prepared the army for a war either. Uh, so, uh, you know, so they were all caught by surprise, I think, by by what happened. Just uh, one or two more questions here. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about uh, Western acts of hubris and uh, how they're similar uh, in some ways uh, to what we're seeing with Putin. I know you've talked about um, Libya and Iraq in this regard uh, in your article. Yeah, you could see that in um, you could see that in Afghanistan when they went in 2001. They sort of, um, you know, the Americans supporting the uh, the Northern Alliance as the good guys. Um, uh, they thought they'd won. They, you know, thought the Taliban was sort of regarded as sort of co- people who could be completely ignored after uh, they appeared to be defeated. You know, the um, a lot of it was sort of almost intentional ignorance. You know, there are a lot of Americans who know about this sort of thing, but they were pretty well sort of excluded. The um, and. There was sort of, I remember Iraq in early 2003, I was in Washington, and I was talking to a senior American journalist. He said something about American plans for Iraq, and uh, uh, I said, well, I don't think ordinary Iraqis will care very much about it like that. And he said, well, who cares what they think? You know, who cares? So I think there's sort of a feeling that it doesn't really matter what these people think um, and do. But, of course, it does. Once you start a war, you know, you've really sort of thrown all the cards into the air and they may come down 
in a way that you don't like, and you certainly can't tell the way they will come down. Um, so now, you know, Putin looks like a real dangerous idiot, and uh, I mean, rightly so to my mind. But, you know, because for 2003, it was fairly obvious early on that um, Bush's ideas of occupying Iraq were going to be pretty immediately disastrous. Um, you know, it was, it was also something that was pretty predictable. I guess before closing out here, I also wanted to get your opinion on uh, what effects sanctions are going to have on this and then maybe a, a broader view of where this is all headed. But uh, thoughts on, on, on sanctions and, and what effect this will have? The sanctions, you know, are a pretty uniformly disastrous history, um, particularly, I mean, take, you know, heavy sanctions, really the, since about 1990 against Iraq that happened, and then since then they've levied on Syria and places like that. But first of all, they, they, don't, they tend not to hit the leaders. Uh, and in fact, the leaders may benefit because of the scarce resources. They probably have control of them. Um, the well-off, the really well-off people around the regime, I mean, the equivalent of Russian oligarchs, uh, have probably taken precautions to safeguard their money. But they tend to wreck the general economy. They tend to wreck societies. Uh, you can see that in Syria at the moment, that uh, the very tight sanctions, you know, they hit all the government areas, Assad-controlled areas. But Idlib, you know, the anti-Assad rebels also, you know, the currencies disappeared. They're also completely impoverished. Then you have the Kurds. I mean, I like the American. Again, the same thing. Complete economic disaster. So it's a tremendously blunt instrument which sort of wrecks whole societies. And governments like it because it sort of sounds benign, because it's not, it doesn't involve shooting people. But actually, to my mind, it's even sort of crueler and more devastating than a shooting war. And I think similarly in Russia, who's going to be affected by this? You know, ordinary people, you know, the whole of society begins to be destabilized. People will well-educated people will leave looking for jobs elsewhere. Criminalization will grow up. Uh, you know, lots of people unemployed. Um, you you end up by sort of uh, wrecking society. And could then, these, real, real quick, could these sanctions end up, um, I, I don't want to say benefiting Putin, but uh, almost hardening people against uh, the U.S. And, and the other actors involved in all of this? Probably, yeah. I mean, it doesn't necessarily make you pro-Putin, but it makes you hold him responsible. Just like people didn't really, didn't become pro-Saddam because of, uh, Saddam Hussein because of the sanctions. But it also meant they probably disliked Americans, um, who they also blamed for sanctions. Um, but it can, it sort of, you know, it, it's, it destabilizes whole societies, uh, you know, and these are societies in which, you know, people like Islamic State and so forth grew up in Iraq and Syria um, in, this, in the sort of wreckage of caused, you know, not entirely solely by sanctions, but sanctions played a big role. So I think it's sort of, it's, you know, it's like a sort of... Uh, it's like sort of aerial bombing, you know, sanctions that it sort of 
it hits everybody and those who are so well protected in a deep bunker, which is usually the leadership, um, are affected least of all. Uh, but I think it has a sort of a devastating and, and, a, and a really a pretty negative impact. Closing out here, uh, you say at the end of uh, your article, if he fails to deliver, that is Putin, uh, as seems highly likely, then his political survival will be in doubt. I, I know people uh, that have this idea that, uh, you know, since Putin is such an iron, uh, ironclad ruler, uh, this, you know, no one can stop him. He's sort of, uh, you know, this this force of nature. Um, for people that think that, why do you say that um, his political survival will be in doubt? I, and I happen to agree with you, by the way, but just for the, the sake of my audience, if they're um, ill-informed on this. Well, I think even guys, you know, who have a lot of protection, you know, he's basically a secret policeman. That's his background, you know, difficult to get at. But if Lots of elements, you know, around him in the Russian elite feel that he's uh, bringing them close to disaster. And second, if they, you know, if they've got to negotiate at the end an agreement, it'd be a lot easier for them to negotiate it without Putin being around. Then they, you know, various people will try and get to him. They may not succeed, you know, but they might succeed, you know, next week, and they might not succeed, you know, as happened with Saddam Hussein for for years. But he's on a he's on a downhill slope from now on. I think I'm pretty pretty sure about that. The last thing I wanted to mention because uh, it stood out to me in your article was uh, you write that political leaders of all stripes visibly relish the role of warlord, and the same applies to Putin. Um, could you explain what, why you say that that political leaders uh, relish this sort of you know image of being a warlord, and uh, you know. What does that mean? And, and, and through all your years of reporting, uh, how did you come to see that? And, and how would you explain that to people who maybe um, are, you know, propagandized and, and don't see that that's how a lot of political leaders end up um, relishing war in a way? Well, you know, political leaders tend to relish power, you know, uh, more than most. And then. You know, you look at them, always most leaders and ministers and so forth, they turn up in Iraq. They really sort of like putting on uh, flak jackets and helmets and so forth and uh, uh, have soldiers saluting them and uh, respectful soldiers listening to what they have to say. Um, the You know, it's, it's something that uh, really appeals to them. And it's very bad for them because they sort of begin to feel they know something about the situation, which they invariably don't. Um, I think it's a, it brings out the worst in them, um, and uh, the um, you could see that in Iraq. You know, Tony Blair is not a stupid guy, but you could see how it appeals to that appeal to him. I, I like how um, you mentioned uh, David Cameron uh, in his memoirs, remaining so proudly ignorant of anything uh, regarding the Libyans, um, a, a country he helped invade. Yeah, he would say, you know, I saved Benghazi because, you know, they say it's not at all clear that he actually said this or meant this, that uh, Gaddafi was threatening to uh, kill everybody in Benghazi when during the uh, Arab Spring. I, I don't think he was, but the areas he uh, did reconquer, he didn't kill people, but uh, not uh, didn't massacre them. But he said Cameron seemed completely ignorant of the fact that Benghazi had largely been destroyed, but by the... Uh, rebel factions who overthrew Gaddafi. 
So he obviously hasn't been back and doesn't know anything about it. They, um, there's a sort of fecklessness about these uh, people who launch wars. Um, and then they're rather sort of mystified, you know, when groups like Islamic State suddenly come to the fore. Uh, or suddenly, you know, in the case of Europe, they're suddenly overwhelmed by millions of refugees who have taken flight because uh, they can't live there anymore. Um, but I think wars always bring out the worst in politicians. Well, Patrick Coburn, I, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax Views. For for my listeners, what what would you say uh, to bookend this conversation? What do you hope listeners are paying attention to or that they get out of the conversation uh, that we've had for the past um you know, 30 minutes or so? Well, I hope some understanding of what goes on, goes on there. I think that, um, you know, it is a pretty sort of dangerous situation. Um, but, you know, since Russia has a nuclear power. And then, you know, just like Russia was uh, propelled by hubris, you know, by arrogance, Putin sort of thought he knew all this. But I think that there's now going to be a sort of, you'll find a reaction on the sort of, on the Western side, you know, among Western politicians, uh, that'll go down their heads as well. They'll begin to throw their weight around. Do you mean, uh, for instance, one thing I've seen is, um, you know, a lot of pundits are, are saying we need to enact no-fly zones. And to me, I, I think that's a very scary idea because I, I think that yeah, could trigger... Yeah, a terrifying idea. Yeah, because, yeah, no-fly zone. So what do you do when, uh, you know, missiles are fired from Russian territory? Do you go and... Uh, attack their military, their batteries there. Uh, you know, you could impose a no-fly zone on Iraq. They didn't have much defense. You try to do that against the Russians. You know, that you'd have to try and take out their um, their anti-aircraft missiles on Russian territory, among other places. At that point, you know, you're at war with Russia. So I, I think uh, that is the, the key point that everyone should take here is that uh, – Hubris is, is very dangerous when it comes to geopolitics. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you very much, Patrick Coburn. Thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Patrick Coburn. Very, very grateful that he was able to have a conversation with me on short notice. Patrick is... Uh, one of those reporters who I've always paid attention to, and being able to speak with him is always a pleasure. If you support the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say "Don't do it," just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, 
uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.